great to have all of you here, especially on a snowy winter weekend. I'm ready for summer. I'm just going to skip spring and go right to summer. That's my attitude. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at the third message in this series about living the God life instead of the good life. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. Let me give just a a short review of our last two messages, and then we'll get into the text today. When we started this Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ Himself, the greatest preacher of all time, we began with the Beatitudes. We really ought to call them our attitudes because in each case Jesus is saying this is what you are if you're a follower of mine. And I started with those who are poor in spirit. Remember we said that this was the person who was able to say honestly to God, I need you, Lord. I need you. I can't live this life on my own. We said that that beatitude was the foundation then of the other seven beatitudes and of the rewards that flow from each of them into empty, hungry hands of faith. Those who live this God life in total dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ do make an impact in the world. That's what we learned last week. We make an impact as salt adding the flavor of the person of Jesus Christ to the world around us that is decaying. And also, we're not only adding that flavor of Jesus Christ, but we're shining the light of Jesus Christ into a very dark world, in the very center of darkness. Today, in this third look at the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see the core, the basis of our God life And that is the written Word of God. The written Word of God. An error-free, clear message about Jesus Himself given through the Holy Spirit to people then and still 2,000 years later today. As we begin this message this morning, I want to involve some audience participation. I'd like to have five people... We could do more, but I want to get you out on time. Five people who would share with us a special verse of Scripture. A verse from the Bible that maybe you've committed to memory or that has impacted you recently that you'd like to share with us. You may know it from memory. You may know the reference even, the location of it in the Bible. You may not. You may need to quick look it up. But I'd like to have five people any five, share with us a Scripture verse that has really benefited you, impacted you, touched your life in some way. Anyone? 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, Strengthen and establish. All right, thank you. It's a powerful verse. 
Amen. Somebody else. Yes. I don't know exactly where it is, but he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Amen. Thank you. Someone else. Yes, Lynette. Amen. Thank you. That's three. Two more. Yes. All right. Thank you. One more. Yes. Amen. Thank you. In fact, that's such a, a wonderful verse, and many of us know it. Let's try it, saying it together, can we? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, concerning that Son, we look now to His sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, and it says, Jesus' own words, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The Jews of Jesus' day, the disciples on that hillside, as they listened to him, probably were thinking to themselves, is he going to do something totally different, totally new with the laws and commandments of the Old Testament? Is he going to just throw them out and give us something brand new? What's he going to do? Well, he's already given an answer in chapter 4. I'll just refer to it quickly when he's tempted by the devil himself. As the devil tempts him, he gives scripture, doesn't he? He quotes the Old Testament in response to the devil's attacks. For example, on one of those three occasions, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's talking about Scripture. I want us to first consider this morning Christ's attitude towards Scripture. It's right there in verse 17. I have not come to abolish, do away with the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill. I want to talk about that phrase, the law and the prophets. What it really is, is a description, not just by Jesus, but by others as well, of the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets. There are other ways that the word law was used by Jews in Jesus' day. For example, it was used to refer to specifically the Ten Commandments. That was called the law. It was also used to refer to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Jews called them the Pentateuch, or the five rolls. Five scrolls. And then there was also the oral or scribal law. You might say to yourself, what in the world is oral law? 
What are you talking about with this scribal law? What I'm talking about is that the scribes of Israel, these Jewish men, took to task the Old Testament laws, like in the first five books of the Bible, and they expanded on them greatly. So much so that uh, in the process of that, they came up with chapter after chapter after chapter to detail how the law should apply to specific situations in life. When they wrote down that oral law in about the mid-200s A.D., they called it the Mishnah. It was 63 chapters long of details about how the law was to be lived out in everyday life. Later on, that Mishnah was expanded by the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish leaders and many of the rabbis. It came to be a 12-volume set of books in Jerusalem. But that wasn't enough. When they were sent into Babylonian captivity, they expanded it even further and it became 60 volumes of books writing down every detail of regulations and rules that Jewish people had to follow. Let me give you some examples of those detailed rules. The Old Testament law said you were not to work on the Sabbath, right? Well, they had to define work. So they decided that one definition of work is to carry any burden... So then they had to define the word burden. What constitutes a burden? And I'm not kidding you when I say that their law, their regulation said that if you carried anything heavier than a fig newton, well, actually a fig, if you carried anything heavier than a fig, that was work. And then you got to have milk to go with the cookies. So they said if you carry anything heavier than Enough milk to make one swallow. That was work. One swallow. They also decided that, as another illustration, that writing was work. So the law laid down in the Mishnah and the Talmud that you could not write two letters of the alphabet at the same time on the Sabbath day. It was against the law. And you couldn't try to get around it by writing one letter A with the left hand and the letter B with the right hand. That still work. But they had some specific exclusions. If, for example, you wrote in the sand or in the dirt on the street, then you could write more than two letters. That wasn't work. Or if you wrote one letter on the wall of your house and one letter on the ground, that wasn't work. It sounds so silly, but it meant so much to these Jewish leaders. Jesus, however, defied all of those man-made rules. He said, I didn't come to abolish the real law and the prophets, the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. I'll say more about that in a moment. But he didn't say, 
I came to fulfill every little regulation that the Jewish leaders have come up with. He stuck to the principles of the law, the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. For example, he didn't observe hand washings. That was huge for Jewish men. They had to wash their hands clear to the elbow before they could eat or even prepare a meal. Jesus said, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. He and His disciples rubbed grain together one day while they were out walking so that they could get rid of the chaff and just eat the grain itself. That was against the law. The regulations of the law. But Jesus said, we're going to eat. We're going to eat. And of course He healed on the Sabbath. The Jewish law said you can't make someone improved in their health on the Sabbath. You could only keep them from getting worse. Does that sound like something you want? No. That was the law as given by the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to completely throw it out. I came to fulfill everything the Old Testament said about me, Jesus. And he did that, didn't he? He fulfilled prophecies. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. And as you'll see on the screen, to even fulfill eight of those, the odds of any person doing that by mere chance is one in ten to the 17th power. I'm not a mathematician. But that's a big number. That's a lot of zeros. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the prophets. He fulfilled everything the Old Testament said about Him. He fulfilled it even, for example, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. All of that pointed to Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The temple itself... The furnishings in the temple, they all pointed to Jesus. He fulfilled the Old Testament. Jesus believed in the authority of the Word of God, the complete authority of the Word of God. Let's talk about that for a moment. Verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished, until it's all fulfilled in me. I want to talk about those expressions, the smallest letter, that's the Hebrew letter, the yod, I-O-D-H. It's like an, an apostrophe in our sentence here on the screen. But then the other thing he mentions is the stroke. The King James calls it the tittle. It's like that little mark on the bottom of the letter Q, on a capital Q. Jesus said, none of that's going to disappear. It's going to all be fulfilled. Now when you get that detailed about the Old Testament Scriptures, an apostrophe, a little mark on the letter Q, for example. You're talking about 
inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture. The authority of the Word of God. Jesus believed in it. The Holy Spirit is the divine author of the Bible. I have two texts that I'd like to share with you, and if you know them from memory, some of you may, feel free to quote them with me. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you know the passage, you can share it with me. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And in the other passage is 2 Peter 1, verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, In other words, men just didn't invent the Bible. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What we believe, and I'm confident of this, is that every word of God was given by the Holy Spirit. The writers of the Bible were not uh, given dictation. They weren't just sitting there waiting for a word and then writing that down. But the Holy Spirit so controlled them that everything they wrote was exactly what God wanted you and me to know. Aren't you glad for that? Everything we need to know is in the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Those 66 books of the Bible have for us, they don't just contain the Word of God, they are the Word of God. And that's so important for us. Theologians call what I'm talking about the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Let me explain that very quickly. Verbal means that we're convinced that every word is inspired. Even down to those little marks on the letters in the Hebrew language or the Greek. The word plenary means that every part of the Bible is equally inspired. So Obadiah is just as much the Word of God as the Gospel of John. Or the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation. They're all the same. It's all the Word of God. Now, understand, we do not have any of the original documents that were penned by those authors of the Bible. They've long since been gone. They were written on papyrus. That doesn't last very long. Some of them were written on leather. We don't have those originals anymore. You say, well, then how do we know what we have is what God wants us to have? Because Jesus has guaranteed it right here. Did you see verse 18 again? Until heaven and earth pass away, my word will not pass away. God preserved His Word for us. So we don't have the originals, but we have thousands upon thousands of copies of copies of copies that go clear back to within a decade of the New Testament books of the Bible, like the book of Revelation written in 90 A.D. And we can get very close to the Old Testament books of the Bible as well because of... Findings like the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946. So, 
We don't have the originals, but we have all of these thousands of copies. And they have essential agreement in each one. Complete agreement in all parts of the Bible. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There are no errors. Again, theologians call that inerrancy and infallibility. Inerrancy means no mistakes. Infallibility means no false teaching. And Jesus believed that. And He lived by those principles taught in the Old Testament. I want to talk about that word authority, the complete authority of the Bible, as far as Jesus was concerned. You see, the rest of chapter 5, and we'll look at this together section by section, in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus again and again uses this expression, but I say to you, you say, Bill, why is that so important? It's important because no Jewish leader would ever say, I say to you. They considered that to be the same thing as the thus saith the Lord of the Old Testament. So only God can say that. Well, Jesus is God, right? So Jesus is saying again and again in chapter 5, here's what some people say about the law, but I say to you, because I'm God and I have the authority, I say to you, He says it seven times in chapter 5. Seven times. Over and over again in the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, we read that phrase, Thus saith the Lord. And now in this sermon, this greatest of all sermons, Jesus is saying, I have the authority to say this to you. Remember what we read two weeks ago at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Here's what Jesus, here's what it says about him. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. You see, the scribes would never say, I say to you, but Jesus could say it. But notice what he also says in verse 18. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, stop just for a moment and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think heaven is still up there and we're still on planet earth, right? It's still here. So that means that the Word of God is still here, right? You hold it in your hands. I have it here on the pulpit. Maybe different versions different uh, translations, maybe a paraphrase or two, but we have God's Word right here this morning. God's Word is still the authority for our faith and for the way we live the God life. Someday, however, and I need to be very clear about this, someday the heavens are going to be gone as we know them now. And this earth is going to be dissolved. You say, Bill, where do you get that from Scripture? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Let me read it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will also be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So even in that day, when it's all destroyed, the Word of God will still be here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit will still be there. Believers who now are living eternally by God's own gift, we will be there. But also His Word will be there. We will still have the Bible in that day. Isn't that amazing? I don't know what version it's going to be. I don't know what the the binding is going to look like. But we'll still have the Word of God. Praise Him. That last verse that I read from 2 Peter 3 reminds us that we're looking for this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. That leads us to our third part of the message this morning. Our actions reveal our attitude toward the Bible. It's a very important truth. Look at verses 19 and 20. Whoever then annuls or cancels one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, there's that expression again, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to try to understand just for a moment what verse 20 is talking about. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As I said earlier, the scribes interpreted and expanded the law made it into these uh, chapters and then volumes. The Pharisees, however, tried to live all of the law. They tried. Their name means separated ones. And they set themselves apart from the rest of society, of the Jewish society, by trying their best to live the law. They counted 613 commands in the Old Testament. 248 of them were things of to do, how to do things. And then 365 of those rules were what not to do. Do you notice the number 365? One for every day of the year. Well, they didn't just do one a day. They tried to do all of them every day. But they failed. They failed because they were trying to keep the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. And so it just didn't work. Someone called them world-class rule keepers. 
world-class rule keepers. But even the world-class rule keepers failed. And I'm here today to tell you I have failed in keeping those laws. And so have you. There's not one person here who can say, I've kept all 613 commands of the Old Testament. One of the reasons God gave us so many commands in the Old Testament, according to the Bible, is to show us our need for God's righteousness. There's no way my righteousness, my good deeds could ever exceed the Pharisees. It's not going to happen. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about himself in Philippians chapter 3? As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But then he adds, what I thought was gain, I now count as garbage so that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is according to the law, but the righteousness of God, which is by faith. So, I'm asking today, what should our attitude be toward the Bible? We saw Jesus' attitude. He held it in the highest esteem. He fulfilled everything about the law and the prophets in person. Unlike the Pharisees, he perfectly kept the spirit of the law. Not the rules and regulations of the Jewish leaders, but the spirit of the law. What should our attitude be? We should see God's word as the authoritative word to us that by its power can make us righteous and can change our lives and those of others. Listen to Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The key word in that reference is the word powerful. God's Word is alive and powerful. I've been reading a book at home for the last uh, couple of weeks called Hope Delivered. It's about the ministry of One Hope, an organization that started about 20 years ago that helps bring the Word of God to boys and girls around the world. And they have successfully brought copies of the Scriptures to almost one billion boys and girls in the world so far. Well, the author of the book, Rob Hoskins, relates a story that his father told about a man in South America who received a copy of a gospel tract on his way home from work. There were some young people out on the street handing out Christian literature. And they gave him one. And as he got to his house, he tore it all in pieces. He didn't like God. And when he walked into the house he discovered that there was one little scrap of it still stuck on his sleeve. And he looked at it and he saw four words. And the, uh, the Lord, and the Lord said. Just those four words. And the Lord said. 
That phrase could not leave his mind that night. He thought about it all through supper. He couldn't sleep that night. The next morning he got up and he went back to work. And on his way to work, there were those young people out there on the street again. And because it had bothered him all night, he ran up to them and said, Tell me what the Lord said. And so they told him. They gave him the gospel, and he trusted Jesus as Savior and became a pastor. From four little words, the Lord said. God's word has power, even in four words, to change men and enable them by faith to live the God life. So our attitude should be, this is the authoritative Word of God. The second question is, what actions should we engage in that would demonstrate our confidence in the Bible? Well, first of all, we should read it. Too many Bibles are like this one on the screen. Collecting dust. You could write the words, read me, on the cover of many people's Bibles. But they claim to be Christians. We need to read it. Someone put this on Facebook and I thought it was so good. What if we treated our Bibles like we do our cell phones? What if we carried it with us every day? Turned back to get it at home if we forgot it? If we checked it all through the day for messages? If we used it in the case of an emergency? And if we spend an hour or more on it every day. (laughs) Good questions, aren't they? How would that be? Here's a second action that we could involve ourselves in. Some of you demonstrated it this morning in our audience participation. And that is memorizing it. Memorizing God's Word. Hiding it in our hearts. You see, it's not just, am I in the Word? Although it's important to be in the Word every day. The real question is, is the Word in me? Is it making a difference in my life? Is it transforming me and the way I live? Thirdly, we can share it with others. Tell someone else. Just like five of you did this morning. Here's something that I got out of God's Word. Here's what I read in my devotions this morning. Here's a verse that will help you, friend, in your time of need. But most importantly, we should obey it. If it really is the Word of God, God's authoritative Word, every letter of every word is God's authoritative Word, then we ought to obey it. Our attitude should be that of Psalmist David, who wrote in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Think about that phrase, Oh, how I love thy law. If I'm a child and I say to my parents, Oh, how I love mom and dad. They should be able to tell that I love them, right? That should be obvious. 
If I'm a husband or a wife and I say, oh, how I love my marriage partner. That husband or wife should be able to tell that I really do love them by the things that I do, not just the words I say. So what we need is we need to align ourselves with God's Word. The assignment in your notes today asks three personal questions of you and me. The first question, is there any instance, past or present, where you know what God's Word said, but you chose or are choosing to do the opposite? Tough question, but we need to ask it and answer it. Secondly, if so, if you did make that kind of a choice to do the opposite of what God's Word says, have you confessed that to God? And are you determined to now walk in obedience to Him? And then the third question is even more definitive and practical. Do you need to do that right now? So I want to take a moment right now before I finish this message to give you an opportunity, if that's true of you, if, if you knew what God's Word said but you did something totally different and you haven't confessed it yet, I want to give you that opportunity right now. Let's pray. Father, You know our hearts. We can't hide anything from You, nor should we want to. But Your Word is authoritative. We can't escape what it says. We can't redefine it. We can't ignore it. So Lord, if there are those here this morning who have though knowing what your word says, done something totally different in defiance, in rebellion, in the pursuit of self, may they confess that to you right now and claim your forgiveness because you've promised your forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. When we obey God's Word by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is not so that we will get noticed. It's not so that we'll get a pat on the back. It's so that God will get all the glory for gracing us with the God life to live for Him and for giving us His Word to follow out of surrendered hearts. Here's one final question this morning as I wrap the message up. Which rules are we supposed to follow? The 613 of the Old Testament? Some of them, yes. The spirit of those laws, yes. There are lots of commands in the New Testament. Which ones are we supposed to obey? Which ones are the most important? Well, guess what? Somebody, a lawyer already asked that question of Jesus, and Jesus ought to know, right? Listen to what I read in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six and following. 
a lawyer came to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament revolves around those two. That's Jesus saying that. And again, He ought to know. So I want to leave you with that today. Those are the two greatest commandments. And if we really have the right attitude toward the Word of God, our actions will prove it. And we will demonstrate that we love God and love others. This morning we're going to close the service with a